Good morning. How are you? Blessed. That's the best way to sum it up, isn't it? Blessed. Well, it's sure good to be together. A couple things before we uh, jump into Philippians this morning. One is, uh, let me just add my encouragement uh, for all of us to be involved in uh, the shoeback, shoebox packing party next Sunday afternoon, and especially to emphasize it's an amazing opportunity to bring someone who is not a Christian yet and uh, let them, uh, well, as someone said, I think Kevin said it this way, we're hosting the party. Um, but uh, the language of, of our culture, uh, unbelievers, is service. And uh, especially, do you want to put something in the hand of a child that won't have anything this Christmas? Um, and so that's the heart of God that is present there, and we can use that to uh, cultivate and help them to understand the God who gave them that even desire. And uh, so it just would really encourage you not only to come yourself, whether you're 90 or 9, and uh, bring some people with you and just uh, say, we're going to do this together. And uh, make sense? It's just uh, one of the great opportunities that we have as a church to do that. Uh, thank you for those of you that are praying for our Pakistan team. And uh, we are moving our Jericho prayer times when we have life groups. We're moving the Jericho prayer time into our life groups. And a couple of them this week got to FaceTime with Stephen and the team and then spent some time praying for them. And so that will be going on this week. Tonight we'll meet here. We don't have a life group tonight at 7 over in the prayer room. And then uh, Monday through Friday, the different life groups are going to be doing that. If you're wondering, here's this. If uh, you're not a part of a life group and you just want to come and participate, just jump in and come for that reason. We just see it as a great opportunity to involve our life groups in what God's doing in Pakistan as well as just uh, praying for the team. And so we'll double up on both of those things and uh, really exciting about what God's doing over there. Well, once you grab uh, some copy of the Scriptures and turn over to Philippians, we continue in Philippians this morning. And uh, the big idea here that we're looking at that has popped up several times in the book of Philippians is that we are citizens of heaven. Uh, and, uh, and so that is the reality. It's just one of the ways to describe who we are as Christ followers and, um, and who we are today and, and who we will be for all of eternity. And the main phrase that we're seeing pop up in this particular part of the book of Philippians is uh, standing firm in the Lord standing firm in the Lord. And we'll look a little bit more at that picture in just a moment, but the growing reality needs to be in a Christian's life. The growing experience for a citizen of heaven is they stand more and more firmly in the Lord. That's the point that God is making to us here in Philippians chapter 4. Now, let me just back away from that for a moment and, uh, and say that when we uh, read the Scriptures, there are some passages of Scriptures that are descriptive, descriptive of who God is, descriptive of who we are, descriptive of the Christian life. Citizens of heaven is a description of who we are. 
And then there are some that are prescriptive. They're the prescription, if you will, so that this description will or will not be true of us, right? And so standing firm in the Lord is a prescription for citizens of heaven. So in Philippians 4 here, in verse 1, we had a description of how citizens relate to each other through the example of the Apostle Paul. We saw last week that they see each other, we see each other as beloved. That's just the way citizens see each other. Uh, We are beloved. We are the beloved of each other, and it's a very appropriate way to address each other. In fact, we should do it more often to emphasize it. The next little word that's used there is brethren. The, The next thing that describes citizens of heaven is that while we may have different roles within the body of Christ, the reality is the playing field is level, and we are brothers and sisters with a common father. And that's the way we see each other, and that's the way we're to relate to each other. And then, whom I long to see expresses the the enjoyment, the desire and the enjoyment of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ of just being together. We like being around each other. We like hanging around each other. As one of the commentators that I read said, uh, we realize we're better because of it. And that's a descriptive phrase of what God has changed in our hearts. And then the next phrase in uh, my joy and crown. And one of the transformative works that God does in a life when they become a follower of Jesus Christ is what they find joy in changes and what they value as victory in life changes. That's the crown. And all of a sudden, it moves from all the temporal passing things of this world and even the self-directed things to where we find joy in what God is doing in the lives of other people and our opportunity to be a part of that, either receiving or giving that. And we realize that the greatest value in this world is, is, is other people and the way we can help them grow in Christ or come to know Christ. And so there's this huge description of a a citizen of heaven where their joy and their crown is other people. That's just a change that God does in people's heart, even as he did in the Apostle Paul's. I mean, he he was putting these kinds of people in prison, and he at least oversaw the murder of one of them. And all of a sudden, he says this about them? Man, it's amazing how God changes a heart, isn't it? And so that's the descriptive phrase. And so then he prescribes for them, how do you experience that? How do you live in that? How does that become a more of a growing reality? Stand firm in the Lord. Now, how do you stand firm in the Lord? Well, that's what verses 2 through 9 go on to prescribe. Verses 2 and 3 that we looked at last week are a prescription if verse 1 is not the reality of our experience between all other believers. Using two ladies, very godly, very influential, impactful ladies in the church at Philippi, but something had popped up in their relationship with each other, 
And Eodia was standing firm in Eodia in one particular area, and Syntyche was standing firm in Syntyche in one particular area. And Paul says, quit standing firm in yourself, stand firm in the Lord. And so it's prescriptive, and we looked at that last week. And it wasn't a doctrinal issue. It wasn't a moral issue. It would be what a lot of us would say is just kind of a minor issue, but it'd become a public issue. And Paul says, it's not verse 1. Here's a prescription to deal with that. So we looked at that last week. Verses 4 through 9 go on and tell us in more of a positive way, how do you and I keep standing in the Lord in all of the different things that come into our life? How do we stand in the Lord? And so let's read through those verses, and uh, we're going to spend this week and next week on them. But let's look at this, probably some of the most familiar verses to many of us who have been walking with Christ for a while, probably some of the most challenging verses. And for those of you that are brand new to the Christian faith or you haven't exactly put your faith and trust in Christ, these are going to sound like crazy verses. They're just going to sound like they're ludicrous. So wherever you're at, since we're talking about standing in the Lord, let's stand. Sometimes it's good to let our body match the passage, right? So let's stand, and let me read verses 4 down through verse 9. You follow along. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And Father, we look to you this morning because you're up to good things in each of our hearts. You have an agenda for these next few minutes of what you want to accomplish through these, your words. And we just say, we surrender to you. We say, have your will, have your way. And we wait upon you to accomplish that. And it's the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So here's, uh, here's kind of the outline of those verses, and then we'll work our way through it. But what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, standing firm in the Lord, means that we rejoice always in the Lord. And, uh, and the second thing it emphasizes is that we have a gentle spirit that is observed by all people, for the Lord is near. And then the third thing is, we have hearts and minds that are at peace in Christ Jesus. And we do that through prayer with thanksgiving, and we do that by very purposefully choosing what we think about. Uh, 
Now, we'll work our way through this this week and next as well. But I arranged it in such a way so that you can say, see, in the Lord, for the Lord is near, in Christ Jesus. And in fact, it would be a helpful exercise for you to do in your Bible, uh, electronic or otherwise, just to go through chapter 4 and highlight or underline every time you see something like in Christ, in the Lord, um, in God because it is saturated in this passage, and it has everything to do with standing firmly in the Lord. And in fact, let me take us back uh, quickly to just how Jesus described uh, the two responses to His Word and two different ways to build our lives. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew, where he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Uh, Everybody has their feet planted on something. Uh, There was a book written by Greg Kokel and Francis Beckwith called uh, something like feet firmly planted in midair. It's relativism. Their feet are firmly planted. They just happen to be in midair. Jesus says you can either stand firmly upon the rock, which is what he says in this passage, stand firmly in the Lord, or you can stand firmly upon the sand. The reality is the storms will come. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And depending on what you're standing on depends upon how you come out the other side of that. And so that's exactly what the Paul is is saying here. Stand firmly in the Lord. What does it look like to stand firmly in the Lord as a citizen of heaven? Rejoicing in the Lord always. Having a gentle spirit that is obvious to everyone, for the Lord is near. Having a heart and mind that is at peace in Christ Jesus through prayer and thanksgiving and purposely choosing what we think about. Okay, so let's just kind of circle around and look at these commands and uh, try to understand a little bit more of their application uh, to us. So, uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always And again, I say rejoice. Now, obviously, God is not talking here about superficial happiness that's based upon our circumstances. It is a joy that is independent of circumstances and is dependent upon being in the Lord. It is dependent upon one's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God the Father. Now, let me just ask you, what does this verse mean? How often should we rejoice? When should we rejoice? What should be our response in every circumstance? 
Yeah, you really don't need me to help you understand this verse. It's true with most of the verses, actually. It's not, it's not hard to understand this verse, but why is it so difficult to live there? Why is it such a challenge to hear this verse and not just be obedient to it and not just obey it? They are commands, by the way. Rejoice in both ends of that verse are a command to us. And so let me just say this. Most commands in the Bible are not hard to understand. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of like God speaking to a two-year-old. They really are not hard to understand. But what is hard is two things. Here's what makes them hard. One is they are impossible to do consistently in our own strength. And we really like living standing in Pachetrel. And so when you read this verse, oh, you may be able to pull it off sometimes, I may be able to pull it off sometimes, but it is impossible to do consistently as just a response in our own ability and flesh. It must only come in the Lord. And so uh, now... Where there are verses like this, where other verses flesh it out and give some reasons and some situations, for example, in this case, where you shouldn't rejoice, okay, we'll take all the verses and put them together. But this particular command, you will find no exception clauses any place in Scripture. In fact, you'll find it repeated in several places in Scripture. And so what's hard about it is we can't do this. We cannot do it in our own flesh. So what do we do? We try to make this verse confusing. And we try to come up with exceptions to this verse so that we can justify our natural response. That's just called sin. It's just called sin. Rather than seeing this in the light of how hard it is, we should see it in the light of this is a call from our Heavenly Father to walk into a place of greater blessing than we have ever lived in, whatever the circumstances might be. See, all of His commands are a call to greater intimacy with Him and a greater sense of living in His love. That's what they are, and that's what this is. And so, in a particular miserable circumstance, a painful circumstance, God is calling us to say, rejoice in this circumstance, rejoice in this situation, because that's the place, that, that's the way that you will experience what it means to have Christ give you what He alone can give you, and to live in this safe place in your relationship with God. And so that's the first thing that makes it hard is it's impossible for us to do in our own flesh. The second thing, if you want to draw that circle a little bit bigger, is here's what God is up to in all of this. God is up to helping us understand more and more that He is God and we are not. He's helping us to live that out day in and day out. I'm sure almost all of us would say this morning, I know God is God and I am not. But how does that live out in our daily circumstances? This is one of the ways. When you and I choose to rejoice in the Lord, 
no matter what the circumstances, whether they be phenomenally good and blessed and we don't forget the Lord, or extremely hurtful and painful, what we are practically doing is saying, you're God, I'm not. See, most of us would agree that God is big and we are small, right? We'd agree to that. Most of us would agree, God, you are perfectly good compared to everyone else. We agree to that, right? We would agree, God, you are kind and intentional with everything that happens to us as your children, as your citizens. We agree with that, right? So in circumstances, our chance to say, God, you are great and we are small. God, you are good and nobody else is as good as you are. And God, your intentions and plans for me are good. The way we believe that is we rejoice always. That's the way we put that into practice. That's the way we declare it through our life. And as soon as we start writing exceptions in, or as soon as we start wallowing in our pain and our misery, which doesn't mean there won't be grief. Grief and joy are often together in this world. But as soon as we start making excuses and everything, what we're really saying is, God, I'm more important than your plans for me. I want what I want more than I want what you want. And a whole bunch of other things, right? Now, I'm not saying we consciously think through this, because most of us would be aghast, I hope, if we consciously thought through that. But that is in reality what is wandering around in our hearts and, and, and the way this pops out. Now, there was several years ago that, um, that God gave me this picture, and you've heard me use this before. Ed, can I use you as an example? Uh, I dealt with this on the issue of forgiveness and unforgiveness. And uh, if you'd be the initiator of sinner, if you'd sin against me, so go ahead. Ed has sinned against me in some way. He said something he shouldn't have said. He didn't say something he should have said. He did something he shouldn't have done. Or he didn't do something that he should have done. Whatever it might be. Ed has sinned towards me. It's like him throwing a knife into my heart. Okay? That's one thing, and that's why God tells us to forgive. That's why this passage would say, what? Rejoice. Okay? Because somewhere God is up to something, right? And God is good. Now, what happens is, that's not where most of the damage happens. What happens is, I take the words that Ed said, and I rehearse them or what he didn't do for me, and I rehearse them, and I take that knife, Ed's gone. He may not even know he sinned. I take that knife, and I stab myself every time I say it again, and rehearse it, and I just keep stabbing myself. See, it's really not the sin that people do us that causes the damage. It's our unwillingness to forgive and to rejoice and to recognize, God, you're good, and you're working in my life, and to agree with Joseph, Ed may have meant it for evil, but God, you meant it for good. 
And so we do this damage. The Christian does more damage to their own heart than anybody else will ever do. I'm convinced of it. Thank you. And so why does God tell us to rejoice? Because it puts us in a place where we're saying in very practical ways, God, you are big and I am small. And God, you are good, and nobody else is as good as you are. And God, you have kind, good, redemptive intentions for my life, and this circumstance fits. I don't understand how. I don't even like how. But I will choose to rejoice in this. Um, H.A. Kent gives a helpful quote. I put it in your notes for you, but let me read through it. It says, so Paul repeats the command, because in all the vicissitudes of the Christian life, whether in attacks from errors, that's people coming in, trying to introduce error, personality clashes amongst believers, persecution from the world, or threat of imminent death, all of which Paul himself was experiencing at this very time, The Christian is to maintain a spirit of joy in the Lord. He or she is not immune to sorrow, nor should he be insensitive to the troubles of others. Here's the key phrase. Yet he should count the will of God his highest joy, and so be capable of knowing inner peace and joy in every circumstance. And so, how do we, let me, let me put it this way. So, there's two options when things happen to us, whether they're over-the-top good or over-the-top painful. I can choose to stand in Pat Cottrell and center things around what I think and what I feel, or I can choose to stand firmly in the Lord and center things around God, who He is, and what I know He's up to based upon His Word. That's the choice I make. To stand here is of my flesh. To stand here is a work of the Spirit of God, and that's why he's called holy. Because it's a holy work when in very difficult circumstances or the best of circumstances, you stand there and you rejoice in the Lord. Right? That's a holy work. That's not pulled off by anything else but God working in our lives and changing our view of who He is and changing our view of who we are. Well, James says the same things in case you're wondering, does it really say the same place else? James begins his whole book with this, probably because he's about to hit them with some really hard stuff. But he says, count it all joys. Put it in the joy column, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, don't you love it? He didn't say trials of this kind because we'd find the exception, wouldn't we? I mean, we're such rascals on this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is up to a work in our lives. And he never gives us a test which is beyond our ability to live in Christ. 
Now, it's our, beyond our ability to respond and live in ourselves because he's trying to wean us off of ourselves and make us absolutely dependent upon who he is. And so it says that there. And it's not just New Testament. Uh, we were reading through the book of Habakkuk this week as a family, and the book of Habakkuk is at a time where Babylon's about to come down and obliterate is Jerusalem. And uh, Habakkuk's a prophet. He says, God, are you going to let the, your people get away with sin? And God says, no, I'm going to judge them through the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, no, no, you can't use a nation more ungodly than us to judge us. And God answers that. And this is the way the book closes. Habakkuk says to God, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, what's it say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the, what? My circumstances? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And this is what he says it will do. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer or like the hind's feet. He makes me to tread on my high places. God does a holy work and takes you to places of heights in your relationship with him that are not attainable any other way. And so it has always been and will forever be. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. So let me just pause here for a few moments. And maybe there's a particular circumstance that you're in the midst of. Uh, and I'm not talking about being grieved over circumstances. That is a, that's a very Holy Spirit, Christ-like response to people destroying their lives or broken things. Uh, what I'm talking about is not rejoicing, not counting it joy. And I want to just give you a moment, in, if that is true in your life, to put it in the joy column right now. And just to rehearse, God, you are great and I am small. God, you are good, better than anybody else. And God, you're up to good things in my life. Therefore, I will rejoice in this circumstance. Go ahead and just let's all bow our heads. And if, that, if there's some particular circumstance that you need to rejoice in this morning that you have not yet, I just want to give you a chance to be obedient to your Father's call upon your life right now and to move into that place of high places. So go ahead and just whatever words you would want to say to him. And let's just wrap that up by singing that little chorus. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Amen. Amen.
I wish I had this one down, but I don't. And, uh, and I know I just robbed myself of even more of what God has for me in my intimacy with him. And, uh, and so we'll stay on the path together, right? Well, he moves now from this counting it all joy or rejoicing the Lord always, and he moves into the horizontal relationships. And, uh, and we know this from experience. If, if, if you have a bad attitude, well, let me just talk about myself. If I have a bad attitude about something that's going on, am I very nice to be around? How do you know? Um, no. You know, it just plays out in relationships, and it almost always affects the relationships that are the closest to you first, huh? The ones you care the most about. It's just part of the twistedness of sin that that's the way it plays out. And so here's another command of what it means to stand firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, the word gentle, and you'll notice spirit is in italics in the New American Standard, and if you have other translations, it's probably translated uh, with a different word. It's a very difficult word to capture. Um, The ESV says, let your reasonableness be known to all people. Uh, New Living Translation says, uh, let everyone see that you are considerate to other people. Everybody that translates this word agrees that at the core of this word is a selflessness in relationship to other people. Um, A selflessness. Why didn't they just translate it that way? Because what the verse emphasizes is what other people notice, not what the individual is doing. And, And so when a person exercises selflessness to other people, people will observe that they're gentle. They'll observe they're reasonable. That's their observation. Does that kind of make sense? But at the core of it is this selflessness that takes us back to chapter 2, where we're told to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then it goes on to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ there. And, um, and you'll notice that even here, what's the motivation, what's the encouragement uh, that this be done? It is that the Lord is what? The Lord is near. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, it could mean that the Lord is with you. The Lord is present. Remember when he uh, gave the great commission, he says in King James, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world. And so it could be a reference to that, but most people feel like because of a similar verse in James that I'll show you in just a minute, it's really a reference to our coming and standing before the Lord or getting out of this world and being present with Jesus Christ is not very far away. So just be gentle, because one day we're going to meet He who has been gentle to us. He who has been selfless to us. And we're going to meet Him. And forever we are going to be gentle towards all people as we are citizens of heaven, living in heaven. And so why not start now? Be gentle. 
Be selfless to other people, for the Lord is near. And you'll notice that it's such a consistency of behavior that other people notice it. It is a very observable behavior. So here's the verse from James 5.8. You too be patient. That's our word gentle. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. You might also remember, and if not, I'll show you right here, but this is a qualification for those men who are going to serve as elders. And we're getting ready to affirm elders for next year. But here is that part of the, of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 3, 2. Uh, and I just jumped into the qualifications. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Isn't that the coolest word, by the way, pugnacious? I mean, that's one of those, I forget what you call it, where the word sounds like what it is. I mean, don't you just hear pugnacious and see somebody getting beat? Um, but gentle, that's our word, gentle. Not pugnacious, not self-centered, not reactive to things, but selfless in the relationship with other people, or Titus 3.2, to, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, that's our word, showing every consideration for all men. And so here is the second um, um, calling uh, and commandment to the Lord Jesus Christ of no matter what the circumstances are in our life, we are to be selfless towards other people. And boy, when we get in tough circumstances, what's the natural tendency? To get very selfish. We begin to notice what people aren't doing for us. We begin to notice just all kinds of things. And again, uh, God's trying to wean us off of standing in ourselves so that we stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, even in those most difficult circumstances, you stay selfless, you stay gentle to, to other people, for the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And so here again, let me just pause for a minute. And maybe there's a particular um, place where even this morning you haven't been gentle for somebody. Um, and I mean, the Spirit's just put his finger on there. Isn't he so good to do that? He's just put his finger on there and said, you know, that was selfish. It wasn't selfless. And let me just give you a moment to agree with him so that you can experience that cleansing and you can move into this place of reestablishing being gentle with that person or anybody else. So go ahead, just go ahead and bow your heads again, please. And uh, just respond to the Lord who is near, the Lord who has been gentle to you. Lord, we do thank you, thank you for your selflessness towards us. And boy, we thank you for being so gentle towards us. If you had not been gentle towards us, you would have had to consume us. And so we thank you for your gentleness. And Lord, grow us in our dependency upon you to be this towards the people we come in contact with, especially the people that we spend the most time with. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so two prescriptions so far of what it means to live in relationship with each other. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Prescription. 
Second prescription, let your gentleness spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Well, that's probably enough to swallow for this morning. You ready to begin biting off a third prescription? And uh, I suppose this is probably one of the most memorized uh, couple verses, one of the verses that we try to live in the most. Um, And let's just go ahead and look at it. We'll start it. We won't finish it this morning. But verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so there you see the command, there you see the prescription, be anxious for nothing. Uh, it could also be just as accurately translated, stop worrying about anything. It's a recognition that this is a reality of a believer's life that we worry. We, we have anxiety. And, and what Paul says is stop that. And he says, don't worry about what? Again, we have this crazy word in there. What? Anything. Again, he, God just knows us, doesn't he? He just knows we'll say, well, yeah, but this. And so he makes it really simple and clear for us. Now, I suspect, I suspect we've all tried not to worry. I mean, raise your hand if you've tried not to worry. Yeah, just keep it up if it's been this weekend, okay? Uh, that's, just, that's just part of the reality of who we are. So let me ask you, how well does it work for you to tell yourself not to worry? It's never worked once for me, but I still try it. It has just never worked one, and that's not the prescription, is it? It's fascinating. God doesn't say, stop, and just tell yourself to stop worrying. He tells us something else to do other than worry, and that's really important here. Um, now, before I move on and we look at the, the specifics of the prescription here, uh, see, there's two, there's two kind of opposite extremes that we can land in here. Uh, we can worry about something, or we can be unconcerned and not care about anything. We can become numb to things, or we can, we can be concerned. And all, all worry is, is it is rightful concern on steroids. It's rightful concern that is blown out of proportion. In fact, the word concern is right there, and it's used in a good way back in chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 20, where Paul says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. So God never wants us to move to the place where we're numb to things, where we're unconcerned about people. He never wants us to go there. But he also doesn't want us to live over on this extreme where we are concerned uh, beyond what we should be concerned about. And that's part of the trick of this thing, is he calls us to live in this middle place where we have rightful concerns, but we don't go to either one of these extremes. Now, that, and that's part of the challenge of the whole thing about concern. It's particularly difficult where we have some responsibility towards, let's say, a, a person. It's particularly difficult to know where our concern and our responsibility ends and God's begins, right? 
And the way, the most vivid example of this for me, um, right now anyway, is with my children. Because I do have a responsibility over my children. But can I keep them safe, ultimately? No. Do I even know that that's God's plan for my child all the time? No, I don't. Can I protect them from everything? No. Do I even know that that's God's plan to protect them from everything? No. And so how do I figure out what's my responsibility and where it's, it's God's and I have to release it to Him and not end up over here in the anxiety, worry category? And for those of you that don't have children, you've got something, you've got somebody in your life that this would be true of for you. And, uh, and I mean, I could give you a hundred examples. I probably don't even need to give them to you, but just take my youngest son, John. I mean, he drives off, and I can't help but think, should I have let him go? But driving's a part of living in this culture. It's a part of serving God. It's a part of living in Christ. Should I let him surf? I go down there and watch him surf. If something happened out there, I'm of no help whatsoever. <laughs> then he got a concussion, and then you think, should I make him stop surfing? No. Should he go to Pakistan? See, this is where the rubber meets the road on this stuff, and I can't pretend like I always get it straight. But it's easy for me to jump over into the anxiety, worry part of this deal. I mean, do I, would John, if, he's, if he has adopted and is living out what Paul said about his life, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, am I okay with that? It, would his death as a teenager, would I be okay with counting that as gain? It's one thing for me to say that because I'm out of here. And so this is the way this plays out, right? And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So what do I do when he drives off? What do I do when I try to figure out whether he should go to Pakistan? Well, I try to mumble and bumble my way through what it says here. And so you'll notice in verse 7, or verse 6, he uses what? Three different words for prayer. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to who? Yeah, just don't lay there and think about it all night. You're not a very good source solution to this deal. Let your request be made known to God. All right, I need to wrap this thing up. And, uh, and so, um, and so, prayer, supplication, request be made known to God. And yes, there's some nuances of the differences between what those words say. But, but the point of it is, is, is that the Christian life is not just a set of right beliefs. It is a relationship with the living God. He is our Father. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. 
And, and in all these things where we feel anxious, part of what God is calling us to is into a greater intimacy with Him. That's what He's calling us to. And His intention is when I begin to feel anxious or worry about something is to push in more towards my Father and to push in towards more to the Lord Jesus Christ as, as my Savior and as my Lord and as the one who can protect John in this case and the one who has purposes for his life, that I wouldn't even pretend to understand all of those. And it's my chance to choose God's plans for his life more than my own. And to trust God's ability to protect and direct him more than my own. Now, you'll notice in there it says supplication with thanksgiving. I think thanksgiving is a huge key to this deal. And I'll wrap up here this morning, then we'll come back to this next week. Here's my definition of of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an act whereby we believe that God's heart is turned towards us in Christ and he will only always do what is best for us according to his eternal perspective. That to me is thanksgiving is landing my theology. Thanksgiving is saying I really do believe you're big God and I'm small. I really do believe you're good God and nobody else is as good as you are. I really do believe that your heart is turned towards me. It's turned towards John in this case. And I really believe that what you have planned and purposes for your life is what is best. And I thank you. I thank you for your character. I thank you for your plans. I thank you for the way this is going to play out. And so I trust you more than myself. And I will choose to stand firm in the Lord. Well, we'll pick this up next week here this morning. But is there a particular thing that you're anxious about that you need to just pray to God as your Father and Lord and that you need to give your request with thanksgiving? Let me just give you a moment to do that as well. Any particular situations? Father, we do, uh, by your grace and by the work of your Spirit, trust you to do this holy work that we would stand firm in Christ. And we just want to thank you uh, for being uh, so kind to us, so gracious to us. We thank you even for these commands. As much as we wrestle to live in them, we thank you that they come from you as our Father, calling us into a more of an intimate relationship with you as citizens of heaven. So we bless you and thank you. And would you just stand with me, please, even as a picture of standing firm in the Lord Jesus.